Our text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, concluding today our study in Paul's first epistle to the Christians at Corinth. So now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for the many weeks that we have had to study together in this letter to the Corinthian church from your servant, the Apostle Paul. And we thank you for the helpful, practical instruction and, and doctrine and grounding in the truth that this letter gives us. May we finish well today. Speak to us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, even through these, these details of wrapping these things up. Father, illumine us to, to grip and to follow and to love uh, what you love and to hate the things that you hate. So, Father, strengthen us today by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, whenever, whenever you're visiting with people that you really love, it can be difficult to say goodbye. Let's say you have a family over for supper, and at some point your guest says, well, you know, we better get on the road. And what do you say? Well, don't go so quick. You know, don't, don't go anywhere. You know, we're fine. Uh, and, and then he says, uh, well, I got to get up and go to work in the morning. And you say, well, can you, you know, have another drink before you go, another piece of pie? Can I, can I get you something? And at some point they start packing up and they get the kids together while another conversation starts. You know, the men are getting everything together and the women start another conversation and women get on their subject and the men, they get on their new subject. And then, and then when the women are done talking, the men are still going, and then they get something else going, and then, you know, the men are ready, and the women are still talking. It goes back and forth. But at some point, somehow, you wrap everything up all at the same time, and you walk your guests out to the car, you go out to the driveway, and you stand there, and then some new topic comes up, and you stand there while they're buckling the kids in and getting them in the car seats, um, and, and while they're sitting there in the driveway behind the steering wheel, you say, oh, one other thing, I forgot to ask you, you know, one more thing before you go, and then, you know, what, what are y'all doing Tuesday night? Y'all are doing anything? Let's, let's, let's get together again. You always want to squeeze more in there. You don't want the visit to end when you love uh, your guests and you love the people that you're around. There's always one more thing to say when you love people this way and, and you're involved in each other's lives. That's the sort of impression you get from this last chapter of Paul to the Corinthians. Of course, I, every time I say this last chapter, this last verse, you know, he doesn't divide his thoughts into chapters. We divided his letter into chapters and verses, but, but it just makes a nice division uh, to, to study it this way. But you understand this is the end of his letter and he's wrapping up his communication to them. And he's got a lot of things to say here. He's running out of space. He's, he's running out of time, so he mixes in a few greetings, a few recommendations, some instructions, some final exhortations, and a blessing all right here at the last. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, will never get read at any special occasions. You know, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 gets read at all the weddings. 1 Corinthians 15, I use it in every funeral that I've ever done. I've used 1 Corinthians 15. There's no special occasion for 1 Corinthians 16. There's nothing, there's, there's no special place where it fits. 
Um, and, and in fact, this past week, I said, have there been any great sermons ever preached on 1 Corinthians 16? And I looked at all my favorite pastors and theologians. I couldn't find, you know, a lot of pastors just, they, they're exhausted by the end of 15. They just stop. <laughs> they're just done. And you can't find a sermon on 16. So, but it is, it is full of really good insights into how the early church operated. And there are a few things that we can get out of here that are of uh, really practical help. And a few challenges as well. So let's, let's finish well and let's uh, wrap up this book uh, that we started way back in April. Can you believe that? And now we're at the end. So the first item that Paul mentions is this project that he undertook to take up a collection from all the Greek churches and to send this money, to send the support to the impoverished, persecuted believers back in Jerusalem. We, we read about his desire to send money to Jerusalem. We read about it in Romans uh, we, it's it's a, a, a centerpiece of his work in Acts. He mentions it again in 2 Corinthians. This is a really big deal for Paul. It's this personal delivery of funds to the Christians in Jerusalem that takes Paul right into the lion's den of people in Jerusalem who are really wanting to do him a great deal of harm. It's him taking the money to Jerusalem that takes him into the environment that ends up in his arrest and then his a series of appeals and this long process that eventually gets him to Rome. This collection is what started this off, but it was worth it to him. It, it was so important to him that he risked his life and his freedom to get these funds to the saints in, to, in Jerusalem. Now you understand, of course, I don't need to point this out, this is a big deal in the days before, you know, PayPal and Venmo and uh, they didn't even have paper checks. If you wanted to give money to somebody, it had to be hard currency. It had to be a bag of coins that you personally deliver. Uh, there's no bank draft. There's no, you know, electronic fund uh, uh, transfer. There's nothing like that. He's, so, so physical currency has to be collected and has to be physically delivered to the place that you're taking it. Well, why does he take this project on? It's because the situation was serious in Jerusalem. After the day of Pentecost, we see uh, wealthier Christians selling land that they don't need, that they're not using, and collecting the money and giving it to the poor in Jerusalem to help those who don't have anything. The persecution of the church by the Jews in authority, by the Jews in power. It led to the loss of property and even the loss of lives. Men left behind widows and orphans who needed support and needed help. In addition to that, there was also a pretty serious famine around this time, creating a difficult set of circumstances for the Christians in Jerusalem, those who remained there. So Paul sees a great opportunity here. There's a wonderful opportunity for the churches throughout Greece who are doing a little bit better financially to give to their brothers in Jerusalem who are doing far worse. But there are hints here that Paul's motivated by another purpose as well. So yes, they need support. Yes, absolutely, let's take care of that. But he's not only working on a relief effort, he is also hoping to connect these new Greek churches back to the uh, Jewish Christians in Judea. He wants this collection to be a sign of something bigger, of something more. And one indication of that is when he gets all this collected and he's ready to go back to Jerusalem, he's a little anxious about how this is going to be received. In, in Romans 15, he talks about this. Again, he keeps bringing this up in different letters. He, in Romans 15, he asks everyone to pray. He says, pray that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe 
and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's worried that after he does all this work, that he's going to bring this money back to Jerusalem and it may not be received. Or they may, they may not think that it was important work. Or they may not understand the effort that he undertook to get that money to them. He's worried that after doing all this work of collecting money from all the churches, that it's not going to be received well back in Jerusalem. If, if you wonder how tense were things between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, that's how tense it was to think we could collect all this money and they may not receive it. They may not want the help. They may turn their nose up at it because it came from the Gentile Christians. It came from the Gentile churches. And his bigger goal is to demonstrate both to the Gentile Christians and to the Jewish Christians, y'all are all part of the same church. You're part of the same family. To show the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, this is how much these people love you. This is how much they uh, respect you and, and how much they want to serve you and be part of the same family. And, and demonstrate to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that all of these other churches out here, you don't need to be suspicious of them. They really are part of the church. They're part of the same body. And, and even if they didn't go through the Jewish rites of circumcision, even if they've never been to the temple, even if they've never celebrated your holidays, your feast days uh, to, to get to Jesus, uh, they're as much a part of the body of Christ as you are. See, because the Jew, and it, this is a big issue in the New Testament, the Jewish Christians continually harbor suspicion about these lawless Gentile Christians. So this collection, Paul hopes, is going to go a long way to demonstrate all of the good things that are happening out there in the Greek churches. So yes, this collection is going to feed the hungry, but it's going to demonstrate to both the giver and the receiver that they are bound together in one spirit. And how appropriate is this to address this in this letter to the Corinthians, where he's already pointedly spent so much time talking about divisions and disunity of the church, where he's expressed this urgent need for the brethren to be unified and how important unity is at the heart of everything. And now he brings it to this point where there's this practical nuts and bolts way. How do we practice this unity? How do we show forth this unity? How do we show this love that I've been teaching? Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to help you focus your unity and your love, not only uh, focus on how we do this thing internally, but I want you to be outward focused on other Christians and on other congregations and on other people and needs outside your own body. You want to increase internal unity? You want to build up internal faith? Then focus it outward. Require something tangible to be done and focus it out. And that's what Paul masterfully does here at the end of this letter. So watch how he addresses it. Verse 1, he says, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so now you must do also. With apostolic authority, he is able to say, here's what we're going to do. You got it? This is what we're doing. We're not taking a vote. I didn't ask for a motion in a second. No discussion. We're all going to participate. Nobody sits this out. All the churches give, and every member of every church gives. So in verse 2, he says, On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside. On the first day of the week. Now, this is one of those places in the New Testament where we read about the special significance given to the first day of the week. Sunday. This is in the early church. Sunday is important. From very early on, the church began worshiping on the first day of the week. And they make a break with the Old Testament Sabbath. Now, allow me to just follow this thread for just a moment. I promise we'll get back on, but I just want to follow this because this is, this is pretty important. 
And we'll, we'll come back to the collection um, that, that Paul has taken up. Occasionally, you'll come across somebody who believes that the Old Testament Sabbath is still in effect. And, and one of the signs, they believe one of the signs of the compromise of the church over the last 2,000 years is that we worship on the first day of the week and not the last day of the week, that we're not obeying the command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy because we worship on Sunday and not Saturday. The entire Seventh-day Adventist denomination is built on this premise. There, there are also, if you drive through parts of Alabama and Mississippi, there are Seventh-day Baptists. There's a denomination called Seventh-day Baptists, and there are all kinds of other Judaizing sects and groups and cults strewn across the American ecclesiastical landscape who hold forth this idea that you know we're really messing up by worshiping on Sunday and not on Saturday. Well, why do we worship on Sunday? Why are we gathered together on the first day of the week and not the last? Well, number one, because it's biblical. Acts chapter 20 talks about how the disciples regularly got together. They got together on the first day of the week for uh, the breaking of bread and prayer. Why would they do that? Why would they get together on the first day of the week? Well, it's the day of the Lord's resurrection. It's the first day of the new creation. In Revelation, John talks about being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. You see, already there's this focus on the Lord's Day. He's not talking about the Sabbath. He's talking about something new. Uh, it's take, the Lord's Day is taking on its own identity. And here, Paul assumes that they're going to be together on the first day of the week. That's when I want you to take up the collection, on the first day of the week, when you're all together. Um, by the early 100s, Justin Martyr, early church apologist, um, Justin Martyr, he writes, Sunday is the day the church gets together for reading the scriptures, for prayers and thanksgivings, eat the bread, drink the wine. The deacons take up the offering on the first day of the week. And as a rationale for this, Justin Martyr writes, Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. So first of all, it's the, day of, the first day of creation. It's the first day, and he says, and Jesus our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. And so from then on, from Acts 20, from Acts 2 onward, um, the church is worshiping on the first day of the week. Furthermore, and this is always something important to keep in your background, in the back of your mind, um, you cannot keep the Old Covenant Sabbath today. You cannot keep the Old Covenant Sabbath, even if you wanted to and tried really hard. The rending of the temple veil was the end of the old creation. It was the end of the Old Covenant. It was the end of the animal sacrifices. It was the end of the old calendar. When God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, he's not only talking about Saturday. The feast days are also Sabbaths. The special celebrations, the times and the seasons on the old calendar are also Sabbaths. Many of those require animal sacrifices to do them properly and to obey them. So just one example, the Feast of Tabernacles is a Sabbath. It is a Sabbath. It's a, it's a celebration and it requires the sacrifice of 70 bulls. So to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you need to sacrifice 70 bulls, and the Feast of Tabernacles is a Sabbath. But I've never heard any of the modern Judaizers putting together a Feast of Tabernacles and sacrificing 70 bulls so that they can keep the Sabbath. Unless you have 70 bulls in your pasture somewhere accessible to you, or we as a community have 70 bulls, we cannot keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Therefore, we cannot keep the Old Covenant Sabbath. It's impossible. And even if we were to sacrifice 70 bulls, we'd be in greater error because animal sacrifices are done. After the death of the perfect sacrifice, the sinless Savior Jesus, animal sacrifice is out. So 
We're not bound to keep the old covenant Sabbath. We're in a new world. We have a new calendar with the resurrection of Jesus. We're in a new creation. And that's why we worship on Sunday. So keep that in your hip pocket. If you come across uh, any argument or any conversation like that, uh, it may be helpful to you. Um, if you have further questions, I'd be happy to answer them. But that's a defense of worshiping on Sunday. And I've only got about 2,000 years of church history to back me up on it. So I'm pretty confident that we're, we're doing good. We're okay. So even in Corinth, they're getting together on the Lord's Day. They're getting together on the first day of the week. <clears throat> so when you get together on the Lord's Day, Paul says, everyone lays something aside. All of you, not just the wealthy, but everybody. Everybody puts something aside. He says, storing up as he may prosper. A man's giving was to be in direct proportion to the way he prospers. God, uh, Paul's not expecting a flat rate. He's not saying everybody, you know, put aside 100 bucks. He's not, every, not everybody put aside a 20 or 500. There's no flat rate, but give as you are able, according to how much you have. They, they were ma to make a, a, a discipline out of doing this every week, in addition to the regular tithes, setting aside an offering to store up a good amount of money for the church in Jerusalem. And the reason he says, I want you to do that is so that there are no collections when I come. It, when he comes, he's not looking for there to be this last minute, emotional, high pressure fundraising campaign full of you know, guilt motivation and guilt manipulation. It, he says, I don't want that. I don't want there to be any collections when I get there. I, we've got other things to take care of when we get there. So do this now and get this taken care of and put aside something every week. Let's plan for this. Let's start saving now. Put aside something every week, a little bit every week. Start doing it now. And when I come, we'll have something to collect for the church in Jerusalem. Let's pick up in verse 3. Oh, I already read verse 3, but let's, um, let's remember what it says. Verse 3. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So it's, it's obvious that he's expecting a pretty sizable gift. And again, it's not going to be paper money. It's not going to be paper currency. It's not going to be a check. It's going to be coins that are going to have to be physically delivered to Jerusalem. So they're going to have to approve of somebody to carry the gift and personally deliver it, Paul says. And let me know who that is so that I can go with them. It's probably going to be more than one person, maybe two or three. Let me know who they are so I can go with them to Jerusalem. They had a long way to go by land and sea. They would be in danger from robbers and pirates and highwaymen every minute of the journey. So this whole affair is going to have to be planned out and well executed for it to work. Now, there are so many instructions we can draw from these few verses. I, I want to mention uh, three or four real quick. The first thing we see right off the bat, it's commanded, it's exemplified, it's illustrated, is that we are commanded to give some of our money back to God on the Lord's Day. That's, that's what's there. We are to give some of our money back to God through the church. Everyone gets real uncomfortable talking about money in the church, and nobody wants to sound like we're mixing money and religion. Nobody wants to sound like we have dollar signs in our eyes. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, in order to have a church, in order to have ministry and outreach, in order to pay pastors and missionaries and teachers for the work that they do, in order to have something to give to the poor who are in need, you have to have money. And, and this, we, we don't run on good feelings. We don't, we don't run on good sentiments. We don't run on, you know, rainbows and, and sunshine. We, we have to have money. And it's a reality that's even, you know, mentioned here in the scriptures. 
And the Lord has ordained that that money come from the members of the churches. So it's not, it's not a dirty topic. It isn't something that we need to be afraid to deal with. I don't want to be up here every Sunday saying money, 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 money. And I will never say, you know, if, if, if you would only, you know, uh, empty your savings account, well, God is going to give you, a, you know, a, your, your private plane. Um, we're, that's not, we're, we're not doing that. But the fact is that, uh, that, that there are needs of, of ministry. And the reality is that the Lord has provided that those needs be, be addressed with with, with our tithes and offerings. And, and, and so um, we, we take this attitude in worship when we take an offering, when we have an offertory, we're showing where money fits in the kingdom of God. We are not its servants. Money is not our idol. Money is not our God. Oh, we've got some? Well, just give it away. Just put it, just give it to God. It is, it, that's, that's the attitude. We aren't ruled by this stuff. And so you kind of wonder, the people who do get real nervous about it, are you being ruled by? Are you being ruled by it in some way? Does it have some kind of grip on it on you? You know, because it's not dirty, and the scriptures don't shy away from from talking about it. We have dominion over money by giving it to God. It doesn't rule over us. We we give it up, uh, in 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 measure according to what God has given us. Second, so that's the first thing, uh, and and the next couple of things are be quicker than that. Secondly. Uh, there's the illustration here, at least the example here of being disciplined givers. He says, lay aside a little every Sunday, plan ahead, save it up. In order to be disciplined givers, we have to exercise self-control in all areas of our resources and our finances. You'll never be a faithful giver if you aren't a faithful steward. You won't have anything to give regularly if you aren't managing well what God provides you. You won't be able to give uh, to the church as you're commanded unless you are disciplined with your resources, with your money. And that, that goes into every area of what God has given you. You won't be disciplined to worship faithfully and be part of the life of the church if your schedule is a mess. If you have, if, if you have no uh, uh, dominion over your time, of course God is going to get the leftovers and you're not going to be in worship when you need to be and you're not going to be in worship on time because you're terrible at managing your schedule. Everything. This, this goes for not only money but time and, and every other part of what God has given us. Our, all of our resources, all of our talents, uh, we, we're able to give when we're, we're disciplining ourselves and, and making a disciplined use of the things that we have been given. Uh, to use. Uh, so be disciplined givers. And thirdly, uh, everyone gives, each of you. No one sits it out. Uh, he's not just going after the rich people. Everyone participates. This whole letter is shot through with exhortations toward unity, against divisiveness, against sectarianism, against conflict and competition within the body. So here's how we're going to be unified. We're going to do something together, and we're all going to pull in the same direction. And there's no room here for individualists who think they're too cool for school, and, oh, we're just going to sit this one out. I mean, I'm not really sure about what's going on in Jerusalem. I'm going to kind of sit this out. And Paul says everybody participates. Everybody takes part. Do what the whole church is doing. 100% participation. I don't have apostolic authority, but I love to put that in a bulletin under every announcement that involves the whole church that you're all invited to. Hey, how about we all do this? Can we all do this thing? You know, 100% participation. Well, that's what Paul says, and that's what he directs. The fourth matter is really great. It's this, this level of accountability that Paul exercises when it comes to money. 
There are going to be a lot of hands on this collection. There are going to be a lot of eyes on it. Paul isn't going to tuck this you know, bag of coins in his backpack and say, thanks, I'll be sure this makes it to the right people. You know, he, he doesn't do that. There are several layers of accountability. He, he says, you approve. You tell me who's going to carry this to Jerusalem. I'm going to, I might go with them, but you tell me who's going to take this. He says, they can go with me. Plural. So everything is above board. Everything is decent and proper and in order. You, you know, the guy who does the deposits doesn't need to be the same guy who's writing all the checks, right? That's just good accounting practices. And that's born out of, you know, um, a, a respect and a, and a care around the Lord's money that, that, that Paul demonstrates here. Uh, uh, and and he, he has layers of accountability, and those are good to keep in place. Well, he turns uh, from the subject of, of talking about the, um, the collection that he wants to take up. He, he starts detailing his upcoming travel plans. Let's pick him up in verse 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And that was the area just north of Corinth in the upper uh, section of Greece. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So he's hoping to make it to Corinth soon. He's going to be passing through the area, but he doesn't want to just make it a stopover. He, he wants to make it a, a good long stay. He wants to be there a good long while. And he's got other commitments before making it back to Corinth. So his desire, he wants to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. You see, Pentecost is still an important day on the calendar. It's got new significance and new meaning for the church, but it's still there. It's still important. And his reason for staying in Ephesus is that he has both opposition and opportunities in Ephesus. Opportunities and opposition always go hand in hand for Paul. Where there's opportunity, there's going to be opposition. And the danger he is in is an indication that he's making a, a difference. Satan doesn't like what he's doing in Ephesus. And that's not a sign to stop it. The fact that there's opposition isn't a sign to stop. So hopefully the Corinthians are taking some encouragement from his example. It's in the arena of opposition and danger, the place of greatest risk, that, that we find our greatest opportunity for doing the work of the kingdom. So Paul doesn't shy away from opposition. He says opposition and opportunity are kind of synonymous. And where there's one, I'm going to find the other. So he still has, has some work to do in Ephesus. He wants to stay there until Pentecost. And then about this time of year is when the storms settle down in the Mediterranean. Um, and he can go to Corinth and stay there through the winter. Um, is spend the whole spend several months with them, and no doubt when he gets there, he's going to be doing a lot of teaching, a lot of counseling, a lot of correcting, um, a lot of discipling. So he can't make a little pop-in visit. In the meantime, he hopes that Timothy can come and spend some time with them. Verse ten. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Can you imagine being Timothy, walking into this environment as Paul's protege? Paul knows what Timothy's potentially headed for, and so he's rightly worried about the reception that Timothy's going to get in Corinth. Paul understands that by writing this letter, he's ratcheting up the tension. He's not, Paul's not de-escalating with this letter. He is escalating. Things are probably going to get worse before they get better. See, he's probably... 
he's publicly called out the rich and the powerful people in the church. He's gotten in their bedroom. He's gotten in their checkbook. He's gotten on their dinner plate in this letter. He's, he's reached his hands and his vision and his instruction into every part of their lives, their social lives, their behavior and worship, what they eat and what they don't eat. He's gotten into all of that. Paul has poked a hornet's nest with this letter. Uh, he's pulled the pin on the grenade and he's thrown it. And now he sends Timothy in there to minister to these people until he can get there. So he warns them ahead of time. Provide Timothy an environment to work in so that he can work there without fear. Do not be antagonistic toward my servant Timothy. Don't be hateful. Don't be obnoxiously critical. Do not despise him. Now, if they submit to Paul's instruction in this letter, Timothy's job is not going to be too difficult. But you and I both know how people respond when they're corrected. There, there are going to be some who take exception to Paul's letter, and they're going to take it out on Timothy. So Paul says, look, if you're not going to appreciate him, just send him on his way in peace. Uh, a, a few of them are probably complaining, well, Timothy? He's sending Timothy? That's who he sends? Of all the people he could send, he sends Timothy. Because there's a contingent there that are big fans of Apollos. So Paul says, I, I try to get Apollos there, but, but this man who you worship, he doesn't want anything to do with y'all right now. Verse 12, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. <laughs> Wonder why. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Yeah, he'll get around to seeing you, but he's not coming down uh, now. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it sounds like that's a polite way of saying, Apollos is waiting to see how this all pans out. He's, he's waiting to see how you receive this. Now he closes the letter with some general greetings and, and staccato exhortations, just these quick one-liners. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Watch, he says, be alert. Don't be surprised about the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Be sober, he says, stand fast in the faith. Ground your identity in the gospel. Hold fast to the message I preach to you. He started this letter with a defense of the cross and the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. He ends this letter with a defense and the centrality of the resurrection. You've gotten everything from the crucifixion to the resurrection here. You stand in that identity that the crucifixion and the resurrection provide you. This is who you are. You are the people whose reality is shaped by the death and resurrection of your Savior Jesus. Live like this. You're not awash in the subjectivity of religious experience. You're not, you're not lost in sensual paganism. You stand fast on the firm foundation of your faith. He says, be brave, be strong. You're at war with each other. How does that make sense? You're engaged in this big, ridiculous pillow fight with each other. You're expending your energy, your resources on that, and you've forgotten that you are in a real spiritual war where your opponents seek your destruction. So don't be cowards. Psalm 31 says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in Yahweh. So pray that you would have the resolve and the fortitude to face the enemies of the Lord. And God has promised to give you strength. And then lastly, he says, let all that you do be done with love. It's like he's summarizing the whole letter in that one sentence. The whole letter summarized there. Underline it. Write it down. Laminate it. Put it in your wallet. Embroider it. You know, do the little stitch thing and put it over your, uh, over your mantle. Remember this. Let everything, let all you do be done with love. Verse, verse 15. I urge you, brethren, 
you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and everyone who works and labors with us. Sounds like the household of Stephanus may have been the first converts in this region around Corinth, and for some reason they're not being presently respected by the Corinthians. So he urges the Corinthians to give them deference, to honor them, and give them the honor that they're due. Don't hold God's servants in contempt. Just like I want you to respect and love Timothy, I want you to respect and love the household of Stephanus. The, the name of Stephanus comes up again in the next verse, verse 17. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Honor them. These are likely the three men who brought the letter from the Corinthians to Paul. They which that letter was full of questions that he answers here in this letter. They also brought the, the, the report from the house of Chloe about all the divisions in the church. And uh, these guys also were there to fill in the blanks, to, to fill in uh, Paul on what the situ situation really was back in Corinth. So if you're misbehaving in Corinth, you might think these three guys who went to see Paul were tattletales and you're inclined to hate them when they, when they come back with this letter. Oh, see what trouble, you're just troublemakers. See what you've stirred up for us. You've got Paul all riled up and it's not really that big of a deal. Everything's just fine. You didn't have to go and do that. Uh, but Paul characterizes their work as refreshing work. I want you to love them. I want you to honor them and acknowledge them. This painful process of correction and setting things right is refreshing in the long run. It's restorative. So Paul says, honor these men and their important work. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Today we call this networking. Uh, Paul is passing along greetings from the churches of Asia, from his missionary helpers Aquila and Priscilla, who Paul met in Corinth and who left with Paul. But what he's saying is that we're all this big fellowship of churches throughout all the world under the leadership of our head, Jesus Christ. He's reminding them again, you're part of this. This is who you belong to. You're not on some island out here in the middle of nowhere. It's not up to you to do things however you want to do them. How many times did he tell them in this letter, here are the customs of all the churches. You need to get in line. This is what the other churches are doing. And this is good. And you're out of order. You're way out there doing things and practicing things and developing habits that nobody else in the church thinks is helpful or holy. Remember what you are a part of. Remember who you belong to. And then he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is one of those commandments in the scriptures we just kind of write off and say, oh, it's just one of those cultural things. We don't, you know, we don't do that anymore. Middle Easterners, you know, kiss each other on the cheeks. Southern Europeans kiss each other on the cheek when they greet each other. We shake hands. That's what we do. We shake hands. And sometimes if we're sick, like I did this morning, you give the fist bump, right? You know, you give the, the, the knuckles. That's what we do. And so what Paul is doing here when he says, greet each other with a holy kiss, he's just encouraging them to do what they do, and which is kiss, and that's fine. They kiss each other on the cheek in greeting. Um, and so we can just keep going. But Paul says this four times. He says it in Romans. He says it in 1 Corinthians. He says it in 2 Corinthians. He says it in 1 Thessalonians. Peter says this in his first epistle. If you have to keep saying something, it's possible he's saying it not because they're already doing it, but because they aren't doing it. They aren't doing it. He requires them. He commands them to physically embody their love for each other. I, 
I have to keep reminding myself of this, so I keep saying it out loud, that our bodies are not these brain storage compartments that we just uh, take from, you know, we take our brain to school and we take our brain to work and we take our brain to church and our brain links up with God's brain and we have a great brain fellowship and it's all very mental and very intellectual and it's very um, academic and that's, that's, what, that's how we are created to exist. No, that's not it at all. The resurrection confirms the goodness of creation the goodness of our creation, the goodness of our bodies, that we were meant to be embodied and we use these bodies to work, we use these bodies to worship, and we use these bodies to show affection in appropriate ways. So notice he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. We can underline that word too. We can underline the word kiss and say, what are we supposed to do there? Well, we under underline the word holy. So you know, don't, don't, Come at me with no unholy kisses if you think you're obeying this. You know, I'm not talking about like a full-on, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> so it, it seems uncomfortable for us to think about. It's, it's kind of awkward. We're, you know, lots of us, most of us are Northern Europeans, and it would be weird to greet each other this way. We need cultural reinforcement. And, and again, it's largely Northern European people. We haven't done this for centuries. But it's something to think about. If the Bible says something five times, how many times does God need to say something before you start doing it and taking it seriously? He says five times, greet each other with a holy kiss. Uh, so um, why would he do this? Well, it's really hard to hate somebody that you're, you kiss, right? It's, it's hard to really, um, unless you're like Judas, who's you know, ultimately just this betrayer and, uh, and showing this um, awful hatred. You know, ordinarily, uh, you physically embody love for people whom you love. Um, so, sure, it seems uncomfortable for us to think about, but think about it. Think about what this means and uh, meditate on that. Well, this whole letter up to this point has been written by a secretary. Sosthenes is the man who's written this so far. We find that out in verse 1. Acts 18 tells us that Sosthenes was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. And if this is the same man, he's now serving as one of Paul's helpers. So Sosthenes has been writing out this letter, but now Paul takes up the pen in verse 21. He says, the salutation with my own hand. Paul's. He signs like he does often. He says in one letter, see what with what large letters I've written, my own hand. So he signs it like, you know, John Hancock. He signs it real big, Paul, at the end. You know how a secretary will type up a letter and the boss signs it? Um, well, Paul's taken the pen to sign this letter, and while he's got the pen, he can't help himself. He's going to write a few more lines. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. You know, while I've got this pen, I'm going to remind you this in my own hand. You might think that sounds abrasive. If anyone uh, doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Especially in the light of everything he said about loving each other and rejecting divisiveness. But here he reminds us that love for the church and love for the Lord requires a level of exclusivity. The church is a community of love, but it's not infinitely inclusive. If you reject the Lord Jesus, you can't be a part of the church. If you do not obey the Lord Jesus, you are putting yourself outside the church. To allow you to remain in it is to destroy the integrity and the union of the community. So uh, he, he offers, he gives this warning and he adds Maranatha, which is Aramaic. It's not Greek. He says in Aramaic, O Lord, come. Come, deliver us from evil. Come, protect your church and perfect it in your love. Come, gather your people together and sustain them by your Holy Spirit. Come, judge us and rule over us. O Lord, come. And then finally, the blessing, verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lest anyone doubt 
His love amid all the unresolved issues and all the correction and, and the difficult relationship that they have with him. If they doubt who he is, at the end of it, he says, I, I love you. I really do. God loves you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with you and on you. Let that be the filter through which you read everything else that I say. It's out of love and it is out of respect for the, the, the lordship of Jesus that I'm writing these things to you. Now, if you could say just one thing to the people who are important to you, and if you only had the front of a note card to say it on or to write it on, what would it be? This last piece of this epistle written in Paul's own hand is his urgent exhortation. This is what matters. I know the environment, the wicked environment that you live in, in this pagan city in Corinth. I know the pressures you face. I know the conflicts within and without the church. Here's the thing that matters. Commit yourself completely to the Lord Jesus. He is judge of all the earth. Nothing escapes his sight or his knowledge. No one gets away with anything. And that's a wonderful thing. Y'all are a mess. We know that. That's not a secret. But the Lord is sorting out his bride. The Lord is sorting out his church. He's correcting what is out of order. He washes her and makes her clean. So submit to him. With the children on Thursday morning in our New Testament survey, I had them list out all, we're studying through the New Testament, and I had them list out all the problems that they could remember from the church at Corinth and everything that Paul mentioned. We, had, we covered a whiteboard with the problems going on. It was a long list, and it was all the things that they remembered that Paul addressed. And we said, how many of you, when looking for a church, would say, oh yeah, these are the distinctives I'm looking for. This is what I'm looking for, all of these problems, all of this stuff. Well, nobody, nobody. But you know what? The Lord sees this church and he says, ah, my beloved, ah, my bride, this is who I love. And he has set his affections on her. Despite everything that was wrong with her, the love of the Lord Jesus remains for his bride. And Paul expresses that. That's why he opens this letter with his, with his wonderful expression of who they are in Christ. He calls them saints. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace which was given you by Christ Jesus. Paul loves the church because Jesus loves the church. And that love is infectious. And his call at the end of this letter is to love each other and to love the bride of Christ. Despite her weaknesses, despite her errors and the things that, that the Lord is still working through, love the church, love the body of Christ, love the bride of Christ. And you do that by loving each other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for preserving this communication from your servant Paul to this church. Thank you that for these many weeks we have enjoyed uh, hearing it and studying it and have been challenged and have been strengthened. Father, uh, continue to knead these things into our hearts. Continue to work these things into us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.